So Easter is a season of 50 days of joy, and today is the beginning of our Easter sermon series, Prophets of Joy. And I realize that not all of us are familiar with prophets, let alone prophetic writings. Usually if someone says they've heard from the Lord, that's a little bit of cause for concern. And so I thought it would be good to lay some common ground before we proceed any further in the series. What is a prophet? The prophet we're going to be listening to in this series comes from the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah. He comes before uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And in the Old Testament, a prophet's primary function was to serve as God's representative or ambassador by communicating what God had to say to God's people. A prophet would hear from God and speak to the people of God for the sake of making God known. Now, some prophets, their writings weren't recorded. Others were, and it became scripture. But not all prophecy becomes scripture. We see this because biblical prophecy didn't end in the Old Testament, but it continued into the New Testament, and it continues today. Uh, St. Paul wrote to the early church in uh, 1 Corinthians 14.1, Pursue love, or game, and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, check, especially that you may prophesy. A lot of us are not quite familiar with that exhortation. But Paul, according to him, is that the church can continue to prophesy, that ordinary people like you and I can receive this gift of prophecy and even can pursue it, that everyone might not prophesy, but many can and many will. And when we do prophesy to the church, from the church, Paul says in verse 3, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So God is speaking to them and through them for the sake of building others up into the image of Christ. But prophecy in the church is not just from people who have the gift for other people who are already Christians. Paul goes on to say in verses 24 to 25, If all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he or she is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, and the secret of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he'll worship God and declare that God is really among you. And then Paul even goes on in 1 Thessalonians to say, do not quench the spirit, and it's, a, and it's connected in the Greek, do not despise prophecies. And yet, Paul knows prophets are not perfect. They're still human. We sometimes think we're hearing from God, but really we're putting our own slant on it. And so he says, every prophecy needs to be weighed and tested. And modern prophecy will never contradict what has already been revealed through God's word. And so what is prophecy then? Here's a working definition. Prophecy pulls people out of the dream and into reality, out of numbness and into new life out of culture and into the kingdom of God. It pulls people out of themselves and into the image of Christ. But this is not a series about prophecy so much as it is a series about joy. And if I had to summarize uh, the, the book of Isaiah in one word, it would be joy. You know, amidst a world of turmoil and disarray, rapid uh, urbanization, the political stresses like we can't fathom, amidst the very things that rob us of happiness, Isaiah is always proclaiming joy. Alongside even the most incredibly detailed messages of God's displeasure and impending judgment, Isaiah still proclaims joy. You can't escape joy in Isaiah. And in this series, we're going to hone in on some select prophecies from Isaiah that are about joy. 
And we're going to want what he's talking about because it's good and it's appealing. But if we reach out and take a hold of the joy that Isaiah is offering, we too can become prophets of joy. Because Isaiah shows us that joy is not just for us, but is for all of creation, all of the nations, every person. And in this sense, joy has a prophetic nature. It is a gift from God for others. And my hope in this series is that we're going to grow in the reality of this truth because I'm convinced that what Vancouver needs is joy. And that joy can be our greatest witness to the goodness of God. But what is joy? We can define happiness. It's a good feeling. Pizza, that's happiness. Netflix, happiness. You know, friends around the table, happiness. You know, uh, a childless evening, that's kind of glory shining down. <laughs> you know, we can define happiness because for the most part, we know what makes us happy. We know what makes us happy, but joy. Over the past year, I've been asking people, what's joy? And a lot of people, they can't answer it. They say, I guess it's a lot of happiness. And that's, that's what the Oxford Dictionary says. You know, joy is the feeling of great pleasure and happiness. Uh, the Yale uh, theologian Miroslav Volf takes issue with this. He writes, defining joy as a feeling of great pleasure and happiness is like des de describing champagne as a bubbly liquid, but forgetting all about its golden color, whiffs of ripe pear and fresh baked bread aroma, or traces of apple, vanilla, yeast, and nuts in its flavor, and of course, its capacity to intoxicate. What are the smells and flavors of joy? During our creative offering, you received a plastic cup with sparkling apple juice, it's not crystal, it's not champagne, not even close. It's more like the Oxford de definition of joy. It might be enjoyable, you might even prefer it to champagne, but it's just because you haven't acquired a taste yet. My hope in this series is that we'll go from tasting the apple juice of joy to the real thing. But we can't just describe it. We have to reach out and taste and experience the smells and flavors along the way. Because joy is a feeling, as the author Mike Mason says, it is champagne for the soul. And much like happiness, joy has a source. Joy has a source. In chapter 12, verse 13, Isaiah prophesies, with joy you will draw from the wells of salvation. We can take a hold of the joy that God has available to us in salvation. And so while some of the sermons in this series, are going to touch on practical things we can do to cultivate joy. That's not where we can begin, because that's not where Isaiah begins. Isaiah begins with a problem. Joy has been lost, and it can be restored. And that's our big idea this morning. Joy has been lost, and it can be recovered. So we're going to begin in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. And if you don't have a Bible, everything's going to be on the screen. Isaiah writes, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. 
The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They've forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They're utterly estranged. Jumping ahead to verse 21, Isaiah continues. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who is full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Happy Easter. First sermon on joy. But if you received a letter like this in the mail, dear unfaithful and estranged whore, how would you respond? And how is this supposed to evoke joy? Isaiah clearly doesn't mince words, so is he just this classic angry prophet? No. If we focus on the offense of the words and miss the intent, we're going to misunderstand this whole thing. Isaiah is being a mouthpiece of God's heartbreak. We're in the era of the 8th century BC, the era of the Israel's kings. During the reign of Uzziah, Jotham, and Ahaz, and Israel at this time is tiny compared to the growing superpower in the northeast, Assyria. And Assyria is on a military campaign heading south, and everything between Israel and Assyria is crumbling. And Israel sees this coming their way, and they have a difficult question to ask in response to this international crisis. Do we submit to Assyrian rule? Do we work up some sort of treaty? Or do we continue to trust in God? Do we continue to trust in God's ability to set us apart as his people? But if we look within Israel's walls during this time, we see the answer. Isaiah tells us that justice was continually disregarded. Doing what was right was cast aside. Wealth was hoarded, and the economic elite showed no care for those beneath them. The widow weren't cared for. The marginalized had no house and were scarce for food. People were religious, but as one scholar puts it, it could not conceal the rot that had set in underneath. They even began worshiping the gods of the surrounding nations. You see, for Israel during this time, becoming a part of Assyria wouldn't have been a major stretch or leap. And so Isaiah's prophecy begins with lament because God made the people of Israel to be his children. He says, my children, I, I haven't abandoned you. I raised you up. You were once not a people. I made you into a people. I've nurtured you. I taught you my ways, and yet you have abandoned me. They rebelled against him. God even says they lived estranged from him. They no longer knew him. But once, we see in verse 21, they were a faithful city. Once, they really wanted to do what was right. They worshipped God and they sought to do good by their neighbors. They wanted to see justice overflowing in the seats. They wanted to see equity shared. They wanted everybody's flourishing. But now the city is faithless to God. They became a whore, selling themselves to the nations around them and faithful to nobody but themselves. And it came with a cost. It came with a high cost. Look at verses 22 through 23. Your silver has become dross. Your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. 
everything precious had begun to lose its, its shine. Silver was dross. The wine was diluted. Princes were in anarchy and lawlessness. Everything has gone to the dogs. As one scholar puts it, everyone was seeking their own self-advantage and no one cared about the public good. But we have to remember that in this moment, Isaiah's prophesying. We're seeing Israel through the eyes of God. How would have Israel seen themselves? Things probably didn't appear as bad as they were. Surely they weren't oblivious to the problem of Assyria or some of the social problems in their city. But over time, Isaiah tells us, every person became more and more concerned with their own gain and their own pleasure. As Isaiah said, everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. Each person is looking out for person number one, themselves. Elsewhere, Isaiah goes on to accuse Israel of being lovers of pleasure. That even when they fast, even when they keep a spiritual discipline, he accuses them that it's only for your own pleasure. And when they break the Sabbath, he says, you do it so you can run about fulfilling your own pleasure. Israel, we see, was more concerned about what they felt and what they experienced, what they could get out of life, than they were about seeking God. And they became more and more influenced by the practices of the surrounding cultures and cities that they blended in. They were no longer distinguishable. They no longer were a shining bright light to the nations that pointed to the true God of the universe. And over time, slowly and steadily, the people of Israel were no longer appalled by economic injustices. The corruption of leaders didn't bother them. The false worship led by priests and the abandonment of God. They tolerated it. It was their normal, and this is why God's calling them out. Don't be mistaken. The tolerance of evil is the result of becoming numb to its offense. The tolerance of evil is becoming numb to its offense. Have you ever had Novocaine as a kid? Remember Novocaine? Good dose of procaine hydrochlorate. You know how it goes. You uh, ate too much candy. Uh, you did. You can admit it at this point. It's been long enough. And at your dentist, you... You know, have your checkup. My, my, my dentist when I was a kid was Dr. Bull. He was like five feet tall and really happy. And he said, Alistair, you have a cavity. I said, oh, no. So we had to schedule a meeting and come back a week later. And, they, they, you know, they put you in the chair. They try to calm you. But then they bring out a disproportionately sized needle to your mouth. And it's horrifying. And they freeze you up. And then they just go to town on your tooth. And, and finally, when all was said and done, I don't know if this happened to you, but it happened to me. Dr. Bull came and he said, your face feels different, but it looks the same. Nobody can tell it's frozen. And it was all very reassuring until I looked in the mirror and saw that my face and shirt was covered in drool and I didn't even feel it. You know, it's reassuring. You take that first sip of water, but your lips aren't working right and it just pours down your side. You may look the same, but your numbness changes your experience of the world. Things don't work the same. The people of Israel, they'd become numb. Numb to the realities in their own soul and numb to what was happening around them each and every single day. It may have appeared normal, but it wasn't. How did they come, become numb? How did they get to this state? They became numb because they were too full from seeking their own pleasure. Because overconsumption slowly causes us to become numb. 
This is why dross silver can satisfy, diluted wine be sufficient, corrupt leaders be good enough. So we must ask ourselves, have we become numb? Have we become numb? Are we settling for dross silver and diluted wines? Like Israel in the 8th century, we too face an offensive disparity between the rich and the poor. The housing crisis here has long been unbearable. There's a horrific overdose epidemic, a massive sex trafficking network within our own city, and the marginalized and homeless have only increased by 30% since 2011. Corrupt leaders continue to find their way into different positions of power. Now, one difference between us and Israel is that we see our problems and we call them out. We get on our high horse, we write our opinions, we attach an article, and we post it to Facebook. But talking about issues of injustice and unfair suffering is not the same as actually doing something. And like Israel, we show a remarkable ability to tolerate these many problems, to no longer find great offense over injustice, suffering, or evil. We say, I've said something, I've done my part, or someone else will deal with it, or it's not my problem, or I don't have time, or more hopelessly, it can't be fixed. Or for some here, if you're honest with yourself, you just don't care. And we can only head down any of these paths because we're growing numb. We're learning to tolerate their offense. And if we're growing numb, it's because we've lived in a culture that has taught us since our first breath that we need to overindulge in our own pleasure. In a recent study, and you can decide which group you'd prefer to be in, uh, chocolate lovers ate a small piece of gloriously high-quality chocolate, and then they had to pledge to abstain from chocolate for one week, which after Easter sounds like a good idea. Another group pledged to eat as much chocolate as they could comfortably fit through their gullet and into their stomachs, and then they were even given a mammoth two-pound bag of chocolate to satiate their chocolatey needs throughout the week. But they're the group that paid a price. When they returned the next week for another chocolate tasting, they enjoyed that chocolate much less than they had the week before. The only people who enjoyed the chocolate as much as the first week were the people who had given it up in between. When we overindulge in pleasure, we begin to enjoy things less. Our range of experience decreases. We feel less and less and less, and we slowly become numb. So let me ask you, how much of your life is designed around maximizing your own pleasure? How much music are you listening to? How much Netflix are you binging on? How many Pinterest boards have you created? How many times are you eating out a week? How often are you surrounding yourself with people? How often are you on your phone? How much alcohol are you drinking? How often are you shopping or buying something new or browsing online and clicking on Amazon? See, none of these things are inherently bad, but the problem is that we're not just overindulging in one area of these. Most of us are overindulging in many of these things and probably all of them. And that's when it becomes bad because everything I've listed from uh, streaming networks to social media to food, alcohol, and consumerism, Every single area has a correlating study that shows that overconsumption affects us negatively. What's the result? We feel less and less and less. 
We lose that sense of pleasure that things that once gave us pleasure did and they no longer do. And over time, we see yet another headline about suffering and we feel nothing at all. So we have to ask ourselves, have we grown numb? Because this is how joy is lost. Slowly, through the numbing of our soul to God. And we do no favors by downplaying the numbness in ourselves. It's the great enemy of our souls because it's a symptom of a much larger problem. We prefer to live for culture rather than God. We are living more for our own pleasure than for the pleasures of God. When you think of the name God, when you hear the name Jesus, does it kindle within you? Do you enjoy the mere mention of his name? Do you, you know, just the thought of God, does it lighten you and move you and compel you? Or when you think of God and all he's done for us, is it like, is it like trying to light a dampened wick? Is there no joy to your salvation? Is it just an idea? Do you even feel like there's always more joy to be discovered? I want to acknowledge that there's other things that can impede our joy in the Lord other than numbness, like physiological depression. And if that's something you struggle with, I don't want you to feel any shame about that. But I want to be clear, the numbness I'm talking about is no respecter of persons. It will affect every single one of us. So is there numbness in your heart and soul toward God? C.S. Lewis adds a helpful insight to this. He writes, we're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And this is why we need the prophets. Walter Brueggemann is an Old Testament scholar, an expert in the prophets, especially Isaiah, and he says, Prophecy disrupts the state of communal numbness in which most of us exist. Prophecy disrupts the state of communal numbness in which most of us exist. And this is why we so desperately need Isaiah, the prophet of joy, because he disrupts our numbness. He wants us to experience and feel once again what is real. And he shows us that we cannot become prophets of joy. We cannot receive the joy of the Lord without lament. We know this because the very first lips out of his mouth in his book is a lament about what we've done to God and how God feels about it. It is a lament that expresses God's heartbreak over his children. And so if we're going to enter into the infinite pleasures of God's joy, we enter only through his pain. And before joy comes, we must lament. We must. Most of us, though, we don't like to feel pain. We don't want to feel remorse or heartbreak. We, we push it down. We try to avoid it or ignore it. I mean, maybe some of you are as dysfunctional as me, and you, you have a good cry like every two to three years, you know. And, uh, you know, I don't have a stiff upper lip. I have an ironclad one. Uh, and it's not healthy. I'm not saying that you should model this behavior. Uh, but the problem is when we push away pain, when we refuse to feel pain, it only makes our numbness worse. Psychologists have discovered that we can't selectively numb emotions. 
And so if you try to numb one emotion, they all diminish. So you can only experience joy to the extent that you allow yourself to experience pain. And if you limit one, you limit them all, and they're going to reduce. And it's the same way with God. If we want to experience the infinite joy and pleasure available to us in him, we must also share his heartbreak. We must lament. How? We're not a culture that laments. How do we lament? Lament is identification. It is to feel, name, and express what is wrong, what is lost, what is hurting, and what appears hopeless. Lament is to feel, name, and express what is wrong, what is lost, what is hurting, and what appears hopeless. Lament takes stock of these things and enters into the pain and then accepts the pain. And lament even has the power to bring us into another's pain, which can slowly expose our own subtle and time-worn sins. In Isaiah, we're invited to enter into God's pain and share the grief we've caused him and in turn experience the grief it should cause us. And we lament because we too are the children that have run away. And we should feel an appropriate grief over what we've done to God, over what humanity does to one another, over what we do to one another, over what we've done to ourselves. And we must confess we've become numb. We're settling for a world that's broken. We're settling for ignoring the gravity of the problems around us. We're far too easily pleased. We keep turning to things that are lesser pleasures. But lament toils the ground for joy. I want you to hear this. Lament toils the ground for joy. So this week, you've got some homework. Carve out a block of time to sit down with a pen and paper and read through Isaiah chapter 1 as many times as it takes and pray and find yourself in God's heartbreak and take personal ownership of it. And ask the Holy Spirit to help you. Write it out. Give yourself enough time to actually feel it. And lament over it. And perhaps you're beginning to lament right now. Don't push that away. Rather, invite God into that space. Because a soul that's become numb must cry over its state to heal and find joy. Healthy lament leads to joyful repentance. Healthy lament leads to joyful repentance. After all the heartbreak we've caused God, after everything we've done and how he could justly condemn us and walk away, he doesn't. He remains eager to be with us. Isaiah ends this first section of his prophecy in chapter 2, verse 5, saying, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. It's bad, but let's walk in the light of the Lord. He's still to be found. And that's why repentance is the core discipline of joy. You will not find the joy of salvation if you do not know how to repent. It's the consistent practice of lamenting over our state, over the state of the world, over the state of our city, as well as the practice of turning away from the things that numb us and turning toward God, knowing that he always has more of himself to make known to us, and that there's always more joy upon joy upon joy. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord, says Isaiah. 
And the light of the Lord is none other than Christ himself. As St. John writes, he's the true light that came into the world and the darkness could not overcome him. As he walked in the darkness of our world, he became the man of sorrows. He carried our burdens and griefs. He shed tears over the death of a loved one and over the unfaithfulness of God's city, Jerusalem. He lamented. Yet the man of sorrows is the fountain of joy to everyone else. And through Christ's pain, through the gift of the cross, we can enter into God's joy. And so no matter how bad things may be, all is not lost. Because Jesus himself walked among us, walks with us, and invites us to walk with him. And his light shines upon us and warms our numb souls and leads us onward to eternal joy. And this is a pleasure like no other because God is better than the best thing, the very best thing in this world. God is better than the very best thing in this world. So we lament, we repent, and we turn to the light of the Lord. We say, Christ, have mercy and grant us the joy of your salvation. And when you know your need for that joy, it's all the better.